0: let's turn our attention to the Word of God I'm gonna actually read off of the screen because I have a different account here this is referred to as the stoning of Stephen from the book of Acts chapter 7 verses 54 through 60 when they heard these things they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen but filled with the Holy Spirit he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold his sin against them, their sin against them. When he said this, he died. This is the word. We're in a series in which we're, we're what we're calling Easter Courage. And what that means is we're going through and we're looking at some of the accounts, the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus' friends, his followers, his disciples. And we're recognizing the fact that despite the resurrection, they're described as people who are filled with fear, that they're scared, that they're confused and confounded. But with each and every instance, whether it's uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the, at the, at the tomb, <clears throat> Um, whether it's the disciples in the upper room, Jesus meets their fear with a new resource. With the two Marys, he meets their fear with joy. And it, if you read it, it's, it feels as if their, their fear, fear goes away, and yet the joy remains. Uh, in, in the upper room, they're doubting and they're confounded, and he comes through the room, uh, through the door, of course, and he says, peace be with you. And his peace speaks into their confusion. And we need that kind of what I'm calling Easter courage because Jesus calls us into places where we are bound to be afraid and we're bound to be confused. And we need our fears to be subsided. Joy and peace. And not just any joy and peace, but the the joy and the peace of Jesus. Uh, today in this particular passage uh, Stephen is faced with what by all accounts anybody should just simply recognize as a hellish experience hell on earth and so what does Jesus provide him in the midst of that experience what he provides him is a vision of heaven and that vision of heaven allows Stephen provides Stephen with the resources that do not that that produce in him hope not hate and what you gain from this experience what you glean from it is that in the midst of this hellish hellish experience Stephen is not disappointed with his life so as we're called to follow Jesus into scary uncertain times uncertain circumstances We need this kind of courage. We need to be captured by this kind of vision. And so in order to do that, let's just simply look at three things here. We need to see a clear vision of heaven. We need to recognize a real experience with hell. And we need to pray for new life in between those. So we need to be captured by a clear vision of heaven. We need to uh, experience a real We need to have a real experience with hell or see a real experience of hell. And then we need to pray for new life in between those two poles. So first, clear vision of heaven. You read this account and it's obvious. He has such a clear picture of what heaven is like and it's so clear. Everybody in this room should be confounded by it. Everybody in this room should be challenged by it. If we're not, we're not really looking at it. Now I know as New Yorkers, We have maybe a strange relationship with heaven, maybe. We have some relationship with heaven. I know a lot of us maybe uh, think heaven is an idea that's a little too far-fetched. Maybe it sounds a little too good, too good to be true. Maybe we're nervous, confused, that maybe this is just our uh, projecting our heart's desires onto reality, that heaven can't possibly be true. Maybe some of us have known people and because of their understanding of heaven have interacted with us in such a way that's actually painful. Or we've looked through history and we've seen that same experience writ large in communities and and all over. And so we stand back at this idea of heaven. We're afraid to lean in. We're afraid to hope. Maybe there is such a thing. And of course there's others of us who maybe do believe in heaven and yet our understanding of heaven is so vague that to even articulate it would be difficult for us. We would not quite know what to say. But here we have Stephen with a crystal clear vision, and for a culture which is sort of weighing the odds on whether heaven is actually important, this is important for us. In, t- in t- December 2022, six months ago, Pew Research polls said that six out of ten people don't just believe in the afterlife, they believe in heaven and hell. Think of that. The majority of Americans in our modern culture, six out of ten, don't just believe in the afterlife, but they also believe in heaven and hell. Now some of you are probably going, I know those other four, they're on my team at work. (laughs) This is a good conversation for them, right? Uh, two dialogue partners that have been helpful for me, uh, pop culture theologians, Stephen Colbert, Ricky Gervais. Stephen Colbert, uh, late night talk show host, very public Catholic believer, very helpful, is interviewing Ricky Gervais, and Ricky Gervais is an agnostic atheist. And they're having this lighthearted debate. It's a talk show. But in the lighthearted debate, um, Gervais sort of Takes control of the conversation. He says, Listen, I just want you to know of the 3,000 religions in all human history, Christianity looks at 2,999 2, 2, of those and says, I reject your God, I reject your faith. Atheists just reject one more. Atheists just reject 3,000, just, not just 2,999. And I thought, that's a new one. Okay and i had to think about it i had to process it just for a minute but what an incredible dialogue partner but i think if we sat if that conversation was a little bit longer we might say you know what it's absolutely true christianity does look at every other world religion and because of jesus say there's a difference i pin my hopes on the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and therefore I look at every other religion and I say I have to reject that God but what it doesn't say is I have to reject everything about that particular system of belief and in fact therefore Christians unlike maybe others can look at other religions and say that sense that you have of the afterlife I do too that desire that you have that someday there will be no more suffering I have that too the hope that one day you'll be united with the people that you most love, that, that's my hope as well. And when I see hell on earth, I long for the things of the afterlife, for heaven to break in. Tremendous resources, a very different way of even thinking. We have so much to come alongside those who don't share a belief and say, yeah, me too. Let me show you this. Let me point you towards him. So as a de-church, deconstructing culture, it makes sense that we're not only haunted by God, as the theologians say, but we're haunted by the things of God. We're haunted by our desire for heaven and hell. or Not hell, excuse me. We're haunted by the notions of heaven and hell. And therefore, let's consider this. To have a vision of heaven may feel uncommon in these times, but the reality is is to have a vision of heaven is to have more in common with more people throughout human history than to believe otherwise. Think about that. To have a vision of heaven in these days may feel really uncomfortable. But to have a vision of heaven means that you have in common with more people, no matter what culture they live in, no matter what time they live in than to believe otherwise. And here we have Stephen, who is not just on trial, but he's on trial for his life. And he doesn't just have a general sense of God at work in the world, but he has a very specific vision that the God who is at work in the people of Israel, the God who has committed himself to a people who loves a people, who loves his creation who's committed to redeeming them, is not just at work in a general way, but specifically, so specifically, that he's at work in that room. That he's at work in the court that Stephen is on trial in. That he's in the hall of the hewn stone. And the two things we can learn, pretty brief. He gets this vision of, of heaven And what we can glean is what is primary about heaven versus what's ancillary? And then how present is actually heaven for us? First, what's primary about heaven? He doesn't get a vision of heaven that I would naturally want. You know, some of us, when we think about heaven, we just think about rest. Or maybe we just think about a golf course that never ends. Right, I don't play golf because that's like hell. (laughs) Or my performance is. Just ask my (laughs) father-in-law. But we think about those things, right? We think about the other stuff. My friend Cameron, his son, died in his sleep. And he said, you know, Dave, my biggest fear is that I I live the rest of my life waiting to run to Cameron and not to Christ. I think that's a shared feeling Jesus says in this vision heaven is primarily about me and if you look at me you will know what heavens actually about it's about hope real hope bodily hope it's about scars that have been healed it's about tears that get wiped away but it's real its present and it's all about Jesus heaven is not heaven without jesus that's what we're trying to learn here heaven is not heaven without the presence of the resurrected jesus christ for you and for me second look at how present he is i said he's in the hall of stone and what's interesting here is that this vision is is a little bit different and yet it's almost the same as the other times where Jesus is, is mentioned as ascended on high sitting at the right hand of God the Father it's almost the same as a little bit different you notice the difference right in countless other places it says that he's seated at the throne sitting at the right hand of God the Father And what that means is that he is sitting Utterly comfortable in his sovereign authority over all of creation. It's the ultimate expression of power. He's sitting. But here it says he's standing. So why is he standing? Because he's absolutely present with Stephen. Stephen's in a court, and they're not passive court members. They're active. They're engaged. They're standing, and I imagine Jesus is standing there, not only advocating for Stephen before the Father, which is what the scholars think, but I I think he's standing and saying, look at me. Put your attention on me. He's standing not against him like everybody else, but he's standing for him, unlike everybody. So he's standing for him, he's advocating for him, he's absolutely present in the room. Now most of us think about heaven, we just think heaven's way out there, past Neverland, who knows, it's it's out there. That's not the image here. And what scholars have been talking more and more, and N.T. Wright is big on this, is heaven is not, you know, on the third star to the right, straight on till dawn, heaven is another dimension in which... The, the emissaries of heaven can open and close that dimension at will He's so close he's right there in the room now if you've lost somebody doesn't that make sense of the fact that you just feel their presence more than you ever did when they were alive if you've ever had that experience it's not because they're actually in the dimension and all that stuff but they're close they're close, heaven is close, very present. So, he stands with him and it reminds me, because I think he wants he wants them to see him above everybody else who's standing against him. And It reminds me of this movie that came out in 1995 called Dead Man Walking. And this was a movie that was a pretty polarizing movie in the culture because it was about the death penalty. And I watched it then and I probably took a side, I can't remember, I was a kind of a teenager <laughs> if you're at a certain age you know how you know how to smooth out the age and I remember watching it then and then I became a Christian and I watched it again and a very different experience and the movie is about a man Matthew Poncelot who's played by Sean Penn and he has done a grievous Thing. He's killed two teenagers, brutally, and he's on death row. And there's a nun. This is a true story. There's, there's a nun named Helen uh, Prejean, and Helen Prejean is committed to walking with prisoners, particularly on death row. But she's also committed to changing his sentence. So she's working with lawyers and trying to help him. And of course, she comes under all kinds of of uh, criticism and attack. Um, but she's this nun, and so she commits to him. And in this real story he becomes a Christian he gives his life to God and it's a funny scene she says to him you are not the worst things you've done you're a son of God and he laughs and he says I've been called a son of a, lot, a couple different things before but never a son of God and then when he's being led to his death he collapses on the floor and he's afraid and guards are all around him and they say can can she come and she, can she touch me so she comes and she, she leans on the floor and it's Susan Sarandon. And if you're old enough to know who Susan Sarandon is, <laughs> then you, she has these big, beautiful eyes. And she says to him, you're okay. And in the spirit of, of the New Testament, where it says wherever two or more are gathered, she says Christ is here. And then she says, I want the last face you see in this world to be the face of love. So you look at me when they do this thing. I'll be the face of love for you. What is your vision of heaven? Is it clear enough to see the throne of grace? Is it clear enough to make out his face of love? You will need that face because if you don't, there, will be trem- there could be tremendous hopelessness. In the face of adversity, there could be hatred at the drop of a hat because of things that will happen in this life. And you may forever be existentially disappointed unless you have a clear vision of heaven. Do you? Do we as a church? Second, we don't only just need a clear vision of heaven. We need to recognize a real experience with hell. One of my congregants, one of the members of this church said, David, you don't talk about hell. And I'm not doing this for him. (laughs) But it's part of the series. And he's not here today. (laughs) We'll see. So Stephen has this literal vision of heaven. Uh, But the author makes sure that when we read this, we're not just thinking, oh, this is the normative Old Testament safeguards against blasphemy. This, this trial here, what we're meant to understand is that, there, that there's nothing righteous, there's nothing godly about what's taking place here when this sentence is brought down. There's nothing righteous about this cause of death. And I know that we use the language of heaven and hell so casually in our culture but when we talk about it now, we, we mustn't do that. We must not do that. We need to recognize, even in a cynical, irreverent culture, that there are some concepts that are just, that are, that should strike fear into our hearts. That there really are sacred and holy things in the world. And even the unholiest of things should make us reflect on what's holy. And so hell does that for us. And what we notice here though, is that Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and the Sanhedrin, who are the most admired, revered, respected, wise men in their community, are turned into beasts. They're either turned into beasts or they're revealed to be beasts. We don't know. It should be. This is, when we see this, this is a tangible expression. Their actions are a tangible expression of hell. And I don't know any serious Christian for whom this passage shouldn't give pause. Remember, six out of 10 people believe in heaven and hell, and one of the reasons we believe in hell is because scenes like this happen all the time. I do think we live in a more violent world than we ever have. Part of that violence is that we see it all the time. There's more people, maybe that's a tangent, right? But this happens all the time. There is hell on earth happening all the time. We spent a weekend in which we heard testimonies of people that lived through hell. Only did it come out the other side. With greater hope, not hating, and not disappointed. So that's what we have here. And Dane Ortland wrote this book On Hell, called On Hell. And he reminds us that the Bible teaches us that in the same way that heaven is experienced by the whole person, body and soul, that, heaven, that hell, excuse me, is experienced by the whole person, body and soul. And I think we can say on this passage, in this scene, it begins in the heart hell doesn't happen only after life but it can begin in the heart in the midst of life and the language here is very very clear very very intentional what we read here is that it says when they heard these things they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen what it actually says is they were cut to the heart that the sermon that that Stephen had preached which I'll talk about in a second right before this that incensed them actually penetrated the heart to such a degree that it caused them to be violently upset these wise wise educated important men they were cut to the heart and they were transformed into something horrible so they were cut to the heart but it doesn't just say that they they ground their teeth but it, what it says and they gnashed their teeth. And seven times in the New Testament, Jesus describes those who are in hell as uh, people who are weeping and gnashing their teeth. So they're becoming like like beasts. And then it says that they ran, just to drive the point home. These very respectable men rushed him. Rushed And the word for ran here is the same word that's used in another place in the New Testament where Jesus has just healed a demoniac named Legion and It's one of the most eerie stories in the New Testament because he heals this demoniac and then he takes the Legion of Demons that are in the demoniac and he thrusts them into the into this herd of pigs and the herd of pigs go crazy And they run into the sea, and they drown themselves. Hermao. It's the same word used here. And so you have a group of people who are far more like this community than not. Esteemed, respected, educated, religious, transformed into beasts because of something that Stephen had said. Well, what did he say? Stephen, Stephen preached a sermon, and in this sermon, he reminds God's people that some, some things that they'd always been told, that God was on the move, and they should expect him to be on the move. He reminded them that, that the present state of Israel in the ancient Middle East was not the final stage, that there was more revelation to come. He reminded uh, the people of God that what they were always reminded of, which was that the land and the leaders and the landmarks, shall we say, were always meant to point to something else. That the land was meant to point to heaven, an eternal home. That the leaders were meant to point to a greater leader. That landmarks, like the tabernacle, were meant to point to not a new tabernacle that was made of stone, but that God was gonna come and dwell in our hearts. So he's reminding his brothers and his sisters in the public square of this. That's how he gets into the court and it drives them insane. It drives them insane. So let's just put that into perspective. As a community of, it's more similar to this than not. He reminds them of their, he, he challenges them historically, culturally and personally as religious people, as people who love God. And that's our challenge too. That's our call too. If you're a Christian, we need to remember God is always on the move. We don't control him, he he controls us. And that we need to challenge ourselves as a church, historically, culturally, personally, We need to challenge this nation as Christians, historically, culturally, personally. We need to challenge our community, historically, culturally, personally. And It starts with us. It starts with us. As individuals, it starts with us. Uh, I'll share this, some of you guys know this story because you've walked me through it, and in the spirit of this weekend where we've heard, I, some of you have heard a lot of testimonies. I'll just share a little bit of, of, of mine that's taken place in the last couple of years. Uh, it's a good story. The, we, we had our first service in person. I found out that I have an older sister. I was taking Zoom meetings like everybody else, and about a half an hour before my next Pastors in Zoom meeting, I looked at the description of the next meeting. And it was a woman with an Ancestry.com screenshot who said, I believe I'm your sister. And when I came face to face with her in my memory 30 minutes later, there was no doubt and it was 100% likely on the DNA. And that was a Thursday or Friday before we had our first thing. Um, so church planning's really fun. <laughs> and so, you know, there's probably lots of, lots of questions, right? Without getting all the details, my father, when he came back from Vietnam, he conceived a child with a childhood friend in which he never knew about and went to his death never meeting my sister Karen. And I've met her, all this stuff, it's been beautiful because Jesus is on the throne. And what do I mean by that? Meeting her allowed me to look at my life with safety. I grew up in, I think, the most idyllic home Ever, I have an incredible relationship with both my parents. My brother's my best friend. We, it was a great life. And there was something profoundly broken about it that we didn't know. Horribly broken about it. My father, if he had an, any identity issues, it was around being a dad. And yet he had a daughter out in the world he didn't know about. And I'm able to now look at this with hope, not fear. Because Jesus is on the throne. Right? Secondly, uh, because Jesus is on the throne, I don't need to defend my dad. I don't have to defend my story. I don't have to worry about telling any of this. Because Jesus has already defended my father. He loves him despite the worst things he's ever done. And the beauty is, is that because God is always doing something and he's a God of redemption, I can lean into that and go, what are you going to do with this, Lord? How, what beautiful thing is going to come out of this and move into that situation? And so my brother and I have, have done just that. We've become close. Now i got a sister. i got a sister. <laughs> right? Who happens to be a Christian who is a yeah, she's gone to seminary, it's weird. Um, <laughs> but just to keep it on the ground, she's had an incredible life, and she'll spend the rest of her life struggling with the fact that she didn't know her father. So the redemption piece is my brother and I can embody the father, my father's love to her shower her with affection, show her who he actually is, not who she's created in her mind to be. And why can we do that? Because we do have a good father. We do have a father in heaven who loves us. And one day, I can tell her, you're going to hear everything you need to hear from your dad. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm so thankful for your life. And now we can live it for, for all eternity. Point three, and we're going to be, this will be really quick. We not just need a clear vision of heaven. We don't need a real experience with hell on earth, but we need a vision for a new life in between. In this passage, Stephen is stoned before a courtroom of people, and who? A man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus goes on in the next six chapters to terrorize the Christian community, a mass murder, killing people left and right, left and right. He was the scourge of the, new, of the early church, and yet something happened. Stephen, in his dying breath, prays for the people who were killing him. He prays to the God, prays to the king. Do not. Don't, don't, he, says, he says, don't let their sins count against them. Forgive them. And that's exactly what happens to Saul. And Saul goes on to be the greatest disciple, if we can say that, the greatest apostle of the church. All of, all of those gifts that he had used for ill were now used for good. He was a tremendous apostle, so what does that mean? Anybody can change. Anybody can change. If you can change, if you have changed, then you know anybody can change through prayer. Through prayer. Uh, you know, we have this space called Neighbor. First week, I'm in there. I don't know what we're doing in there. People are just coming in, and we're trying to spend time with people, and we're trying to program. And a man walks, a person walks in and he s- introduces himself he says hello i'm the friend i said hi i'm the pastor <laughs> and he said no my name is the friend and for the next 45 minutes we sat down he talked to me about him being trans and and his sexual identity and we talked about his uh, being a professor at a there pro- being a professor at a prestigious ivy league school and he he wanted to talk about hell and how he didn't believe in hell. God couldn't possibly have something like this in his universe. And then we talked about how Jesus, more than anybody else, talked about hell and how Jesus, Christians believe, went to hell so that nobody else has to. And I had this book called Gentle and Lowly and the premise of the book in Gentle and Lowly is that there's one place in the New Testament where Jesus describes the state of, of his own heart, and that is he says, I am gentle and lowly at heart. And he said, You know, I have so many issues with Christianity and religion. And then he tapped on the book, and he said, But there's Jesus. Now, I don't know what this friendship's going to be like, but I hope it's ongoing, and I hope we have greater conversations. And I pray. Because people don't like Jesus naturally. People don't get stumped on Jesus without reason. He is that beautiful. He is that good. He will not disappoint. You know, just lastly in closing, Christians are called to just give their life. Give their life over to the world for God and i don't think stephen gets enough credit you know stephen had experiences that the apostle paul never did stephen was chosen by the disciples paul had to defend his ministry to the other apostles excuse me stephen was chosen by the disciples to be a deacon to be an emissary and give out mercy to the to the community he also has the longest sermon in the new testament you know tim keller preached on jonah three times in his ministry over the course of 30 years do you know martin lloyd jones preached on stephen's sermon 51 times in his ministry what does that mean it means that in his death he was not disappointed with his life he was filled with hope He refused to hate. And he gave his life over. And in some ways, maybe the Apostle Paul lived the life of Stephen. And maybe in some way, Stephen knows that type of guy who has the same skill set, who has the same kind of gifts, and says, I'm not going to make him competition. I'm going to form a connection with him, and I'm going to amplify him and platform him and make his Do everything I can for him. That should be the posture of a church. That should be the posture of people in this room for one another. That should be the posture of us for this community. Not competition. Connection. Through prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're so good. I thank you, Lord, for... Even the small little story we've been reflecting on as a church, as Storefront Church, and what you're doing here. Um, And we thank you, Lord, that even the hardest of passages, like the stoning of, of a man, there is a sweetness there that knows no end. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.
1: Father God, thank you for um, reminding us today that you, Jesus, will never disappoint. Um, Lord, this morning we lift up all those who have been disappointed, who are feeling disappointed, whether it's being um, consistently let down by the broken system or being disappointed by loved ones. Lord Jesus, you know each and every one of them by name. Will you reveal yourself to them? heal and comfort them and give them palpable and perceivable evidence. Lord, um, and give them the Holy Spirit to receive and recognize and rely on you and see Lord Jesus, how it is that you will never disappoint and be able to taste and see that you are good. Father, my God, my King, I pray that you would bless uh, the church planters out of City of City. Thank you for a weekend of, of renewal, maybe a small sabbatical. I pray that all those who feel equipped and trained uh, would then go home and we would see the church flourish throughout urban environments. Um, we believe you call us into the depths of, of cities uh, to spread the gospel as a light in a very dark world. and I pray that you would equip your people to do it your pastors, your, your future teachers, uh, your volunteers, um, that we would see your name go through a world that desperately needs you.
2: Dear Lord, I just wanna thank you for the reminder today that even in our hell many times, that you remind us that you are with us as you reminded Stephen, God, that heaven is your presence and where your presence is, there is peace, there is joy, there's affirmation. And we thank you for that reminder today. Lord, we pray for all those wonderful people who passed us this morning and throughout this service, Lord, that somehow when they passed this area, Lord God, that you would have revealed your presence in a real way to them somehow, and that whatever wounds and brokenness that they carry somehow there was a moment of healing and they'll pursue it. Lord, we ask that of you and we thank you for your ever abiding presence.
0: Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the life of Doug Oliver, uh, for the, the unseen work that he has done in this neighborhood for decades, uh, for the work of renewal that he has been a part of. We thank you for his life. And we thank you for his friendship to this church that we get to use his space. And we thank you for the friendship that he and Barbara has. It sounds nothing short of heavenly. And so we just give you thanks for his life.
2: God, uh, we praise you and thank you for your goodness and faithfulness. We thank you that you tell us not to be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present our cr- request to you. So, Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers and answering them. May those we prayed for know your presence is with them and that you are your s- their strength, their comfort, and their salvation. And may we all experience deep communion and transformation during this season as we come together to pray without ceasing. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.
3: Stand as we sing this final song. There is nothing like the presence of the Lord. There is nothing like the presence of the Lord. As we seek his face, he is here in this place. There is nothing like the presence of the Lord. Sing, there is freedom. There is freedom in the presence of the Lord. There is freedom in the presence of the Lord. As we seek his face, he is here in this place. There is freedom in the presence of the Lord. Sing, there is healing. There is healing in the presence of the Lord. There is healing in the presence of the Lord. As we seek his face, he is here in this place. As we seek his face, he is here in this place as we seek his face he is here in this place there is nothing like the presence of the lord there is nothing there is nothing like the presence of the lord sing it one more time it's true there is nothing like the presence of the lord
0: Quick announcement, somebody left their phone in the bathroom. I know somebody needs this, so let's receive the benediction. You can come get your phone after. This is from Isaiah 43. Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end because I am God, your personal God the holy of Israel, your savior. I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich and Seba thrown in, that's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation for you. So don't be afraid. I am with you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go with God. Amen. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.